This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Nicola Delbeth uh, from uh, Auckland, New Zealand. And uh, today I'm going to uh, summarize a couple of really interesting uh, abstracts presented at uh, the ACR meeting in 2020, uh, which uh, demonstrate the potential effectiveness of adding immunosuppression uh, to peg loader Ks to increase the response to peg loader Ks. So uh, when peg loader Ks was initially um, studied in the uh, phase two and phase three studies, uh, it became apparent that uh, a number of people did not have a sustained response to peg loader Ks. And overall, uh, in the phase three study, uh, only about 42% of patients had a persistent peg loader Ks response. And it was subsequently identified that this was uh, due to uh, anti-drug antibodies, particularly anti-PEG antibodies. Uh, and so there's been quite a lot of interest, particularly in the last couple of years, uh, in whether adding immunosuppressive therapy, therapies that we use often in clinical practice in rheumatology, uh, might uh, reduce the risk of anti-drug antibodies and uh, thus increase uh, the number of responders to this therapy. Uh, so there's a couple of abstracts at this meeting which uh, address this and I think will be really uh, useful for us in clinical practice. So the first one is uh, poster number 0677. And this is, this is uh, data from the uh, MIRA study. So this was a 12-month open-label study of uh, methotrexate, 15 milligrams per week in combination with uh, peglodicase. So the six month data have been previously reported and uh, this poster now uh, reports the 12 month data. Uh, so essentially 14 uh, participants in this study uh, at six months, 79% uh, of patients had a response. So that's certainly higher than what has been seen uh, in previous trials. Uh, and in the uh, open label extension or the long-term extension, all of those who remained in the study uh, who were responders at six months continued to have a response out to 12 months. So certainly emerging data uh, that methotrexate may be effective in, in this situation. We don't have any good clinical trial data yet as in placebo-controlled trial data, but certainly uh, some, some data to suggest that that's a, that's a reasonable um, or, or a potential option. Uh, the other agent is mycophenolate, and uh, the recipe trial was presented at the ACR. This is abstract 0952, presented by Dr. Pujakana today. So this is a phase two placebo-controlled RCT, uh, where participants were randomized two to one to receive either mycophenolate or placebo, in addition to peglodicase. Uh, patients received uh, mycophenolate one gram uh, daily for one week, and then two grams daily thereafter. Uh, and the primary endpoint was the serum urate response at uh, week 12. Thereafter, from week 12 to week 24, uh, participants continued with, with peglodicase, but the investiga in, investigational um, product was uh, removed. So that was then um, peglodicase monotherapy. 
Uh, so the key findings from the study is that mycophenolate uh, in combination with pegloticase led to a significant increase in response. Uh, so in the mycophenolate group, 86% achieved the primary endpoint compared to only 40% in the placebo arm. Uh, and interestingly, even after mycophenolate was withdrawn, there was a sustained response in many of those patients. Uh, so at the uh, week's 24 uh, time period, uh, there was a sustained benefit in 68% of the mycophenolate group and only 30% of the placebo group. Overall, the AEs were comparable. Um, there were three infusion reactions in the placebo group and none uh, in the mycophenolate group. So overall, I think this is really exciting. Um, certainly uh, a potential option for increasing uh, the response to case, which was, as we know, for those who do response, lead, who do respond leads to really substantial reductions in serum urate, reduction of TOFI, and uh, suppression of gout flares over time. Thanks. Hello, I'm Rinalini Day and I'm an academic rheumatology trainee based in Liverpool in the UK. And I'm reporting from ACR 2020 for Room Now. Um, today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. James Galloway who is a senior lecturer and honorary consultant in rheumatology at the Centre for Rheumatic Diseases in King's College London. And he has an interest in infection in rheumatic diseases and it's this that we will be discussing today. And um, so thank you for joining me, Dr. Galloway. Um, firstly, um, can you tell us a little bit about how over the last year COVID-19 has changed your um, research and clinical practices? Well, yes. Um... I mean, the, the impact has been phenomenal, I, I think, for all of us. I recall doing a journal club, I think, in January, where we talked about things that were going to be on our horizon this year and uh, came up with um, vaping and, uh, and vaping-associated lung disease and this new virus that was emerging in China. And I, I think we spent most of the time talking about the... Um, Ivali, the vaping-associated lung disease, and, and obviously we're, we're then within a matter of weeks after that, uh, overwhelmed by the pandemic. My, my research team has almost entirely got redeployed from doing our usual rheumatic disease research to doing COVID-19 research, although there's a lot of synergy there because, of course, we, we've set up one of the, the UK national platform trials um, called the TACTIC trial, where, where we are looking at immune modulation in covid and so there's a there's sort of an expertise from the rheumatic disease field that, that has come to that. And, and of course, I, I, and from an academic perspective, my research interest is epidemiology. And, and so there's a synergy there that we've been able to adapt and been doing epidemiology work around COVID-19. COVID Fine, great. And something which you um, alluded to just now is the um, interplay between rheumatology and infectious diseases. Um, could you just expand a little bit on that further and maybe um, if you could tell us about any abstracts that particularly caught your attention um, with regards to that at ACR? Yeah, so um, I, I, I think there's, there's a long-standing interest between the overlap between rheumatic disease and infection because so many of our treatments alter the body's immune system and potentially alter people's susceptibility to infection. 
also i think that the just the the nature of having an autoimmune disease is change having an autoimmune disease changes our, our immunological response to to infectious insults i i actually I, there's a there is an acr abstract committee group that looks at infection and autoimmune disease which um cassie calabrese and i oversee and um, and there have been some i mean Normally, where it's a relatively niche area in terms of submitted abstracts, and obviously this year there's been a, a, a huge wealth of some really great research come through. Um, I, I, can I, I flag? Uh, there's a few that I think are really interesting. Yeah. The first one, and it's, it's easy to remember, it's abstract number one, Jazz Singh, who has presented the data from the Veteran Affairs database, just looking at the um, describing the impact of the pandemic on uh, on care. One thing, and, and is it's a really great present a really great abstract they put together one thing that struck out to me was the fact about medication shortage they highlighted that a third of respondents to the work they they done highlighted medication shortage as being an issue during the pandemic because of course we saw this massive interest in drugs like hydroxychloroquine um in uh for, for being repurposed for treat, treatment of covid or prevention of covid um rightly or, or wrongly the, the second um, I, I wanted to flag, and um, this is a sort of slightly sort of, well, it's not self-promotion, but the, there was on Friday afternoon a, um, a oral presentation which I, I moderated on um, infection rheumatic disease. And there were some really great abstracts in there, and I, I don't want to say that any one was better than the other, but um, the, first was, the first abstract was by Rachel Flood from Dublin, um, looking at... Um, a cohort of people who had been admitted with uh, COVID, who'd had COVID, they had community data on COVID and hospital data, and they looked at whether or not being on biologics um, or being on immune modulation altered the chance of getting, getting a severe outcome or dying from COVID. Um, like we're seeing across the board, there appears to be some protective effect of being on immune modulators if you develop COVID in the community. They, they spotted something quite novel though that I hadn't seen reported by anyone else, which was nosocomial COVID appeared different. So people with autoimmune rheumatic disease who acquired nosocomial COVID, acquired COVID-19 diagnosis whilst an inpatient ha had worse outcomes. And, and so, and that was an interesting, a very interesting observation. I'd encourage people to look at that abstract. And, and then the final one, um, and so that abstract number was 0454. And the final abstract was uh, is one of the late breakers. So it's easy to find and, and, and under the name Mark Yates. And, and that was a very nice piece of work, so not in that session. Uh, it was looking at shielding behavior and whether people with autoimmune rheumatic diseases shield. And what's really interesting, I think, when you look at the data, there's multiple data sets, the registries and other data sets that have suggested people with autoimmune rheumatic disease on biologics or on targeted therapies may be less likely to develop a severe course of COVID. However, one of the great confounders in this is being exposed to how many of them were actually exposed to COVID. And what Mark Yates's work does is it's large international, it's a global survey looking at shielding behavior, showing that people on biologics compared to other people with autoimmune rheumatic diseases um, were much more likely to adopt this behavior where they were, in the UK, we use the term shielding, it's not used globally, but they were basically taking extra caution around their exposure to COVID. So it's possible that some of the potential protective effect of the drugs 
maybe behavior related. Really interesting abstracts. Great, thank you. And actually, um, the infection related rheumatic disease oral session yesterday was really interesting. I'd encourage people to go back and watch that on demand um, if they can. And it's interesting what you say about the, um, the availability of drugs globally as well. I think um, I saw a poster in the infection um, session on um, drug availability from the AFLAR group. Um, so certainly there seems to be a lot of regional variation in that. It's quite interesting to see, but I guess that's the beauty of ACR where you get all of this combination of global um, information so you can compare local practices with uh, what's going on worldwide. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Galloway, for joining us today. Um, don't forget, if you want to be kept updated during ACR 2020, you can follow me at Dr. Mini Day on um, Twitter, or you can follow the Room Now Twitter feed. Um, thank you very much for watching. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at the ACR 2020 Convergence virtual meeting. And I want to share a study with you um, that was conducted by Jeff Curtis. And he's looking at male osteoporosis. Now, this is a topic we don't talk about, but it's one of the things that we have to uh, be aware of and we have to make an impact because this is a study looking at older male adults, right? So it's a Medicare population group and they identified men who had osteoporotic or fragility fractures. And they found there were 9,876 men who suffered from fragility fractures. Um, about 61% of them were over the age of 75 years old. 90% of them were white. There were more instances of spine fractures compared to hip or ankle fractures. And this is the shocking part. Less than 6% of patients actually had testing with a bone density, um, DEXA or other means to assess bone density within two years of their fractures, less than 6%. So male osteoporosis is often underdiagnosed. We really need to be vigilant because the same risk factors apply to men as they do for women. And that risk includes age, the use of glucocorticoids. I mean, think about how many patients you prescribe glucocorticoids, you know, for rheumatoid arthritis, polymyalgia rheumatic, polymyalgia rheumatica, giant cell arteritis, vasculitis, sarcoidosis, um, and also other risk factors, traditional ones like smoke, smoking, alcohol consumption of three or more drinks a day, the presence of um, a family history of fractures. So think about these patients, um, men, also have osteoporotic fractures. And then if you're in doubt whether or not you should be treating them, use the FRAX calculator. This is Dr. Catherine Dow for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Good evening. This is Leanne Gensler from San Francisco reporting for Room Now on spondyloarthritis at the ACR 2020 Convergence meeting. Uh, today's meeting, this is the second day of the meeting, and for spondyloarthritis, there were no scientific oral abstract sessions today. However, there were a couple of abstracts that caught my eye in the poster session that I thought I would discuss. And then I'd also like to discuss the study group that was um, 
uh, in a session today. So in the posters today, there were the two abstracts that caught my mind. The first one is uh, 0876. And this was presented by Marina McGray from Case Western Reserve University on behalf of the um, all of the coast investigators. So this was a study that integrated the results of all patients enrolled in the ixekizumab trials for axial spondylarthritis, including those with ankylosing spondylitis and those with non-radiographic axial spondylarthritis. And in the study, one of the things they noted was that they were not unexpectedly more men that enrolled in the AS trials compared to women, but actually in the non-radiographic trials, it was relatively equigender. Uh, not surprisingly, women tended to have a later onset of disease compared to men, and that's something that has been reported before. And women tended to be less frequently HLA B27 positive and non-radiographic patients were less frequently B27 positive compared to the AS patients. Now, that is not entirely surprising uh, either, because remember that this is not daily practice and the way we see patients in clinic, this is a clinical trial recruiting patients with active disease. And so in particular, the non-radiographic patients really required an objective sign of inflammation. And that was either an MRI that was positive or a CRP that was elevated. And so we know that women tend to have lower serologic burden of inflammation or sort of CRPs. And you, can, you might imagine that they might be more likely to have an MRI that's positive to get into a trial like this. Um, the other interesting point was that uveitis uh, was um, more common in, uh, in the male patients with AS. Um, and that is, uh, that, that is also not surprising in that, um, again, B27 associates with uveitis um, in patients. So, so I think this was an interesting study in looking at the phenotype of patients with axial spondylarthritis, but recognizing as well that this is a clinical trial and may not represent daily clinical practice. The uh, second abstract that caught my eye was the follow-up of the C-View trial. So this is abstract number 0881. Um, and this was a phase four clinical, open-label clinical trial um, of uh, patients with axial, active axial spondylarthritis that were being started on sotilizumab pegol, but they required to have a history of recurrent anterior uveitis in there. Uh, in their past, and in fact, at least one of the uveitis attacks had to be in the year preceding enrollment. And they then followed patients for 96 weeks. And the question was, did they have less flares, um, the sort of the flare uh, rate or event rate in the follow-up period compared to the period before starting therapy? And they met their primary endpoint, but keeping in mind that every patient had to have flared in the year preceding the enrollment to the trial, it isn't surprising that patients had less flares after follow-up because that is just the natural history of uveitis being a remitting process. And so the question is, does sotilizumab pegol truly decrease the rate of flares in patients with axial spondylarthritis and a history of flares? Now, interestingly, they, um, they looked at uh, patients sort of stratified by whether they'd had one flare or two flares, in the, um, in the prior year and of the 36 patients or 40% of patients that had one flare, 
then 9% of them had a flare in the follow-up period. And uh, interestingly, sort of similarly, of the 60 patients that had at least two flares, 11% had a flare in the follow-up period. So that is certainly a lower number than the, the um, 80% that had a flare in the, in the um, prior period. But, uh, but, but I'm not sure that this truly is evidence that it uh, prevents flares as opposed to regression to the mean still. And I would recognize that this is not controlled data. Um, and I would love to see some control data against this. I do think this follows the guidelines though. The guidelines, the ACR guidelines do recommend a monoclonal antibody for those patients with active axial spondyloarthritis and recurrent uveitis. So um, this is in keeping with what we currently recommend, but I think we do need more uh, stronger evidence to truly say that this is as good as the other monoclonal antibodies that have strong evidence for anterior uveitis treatment. Uh, the final session that I wanted to highlight today is the session on uh, the study group for spondyloarthritis, which really dealt with nomenclature and what are the terms we should use to define the disease of axial spondyloarthritis. Um, and the question of whether to use non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis and, and ankylosing spondylitis instead of, or, or rather the newer term radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. Uh, what wasn't discussed, which but which I think is incredibly important, is that seronegative is a term that should never be used for this disease state where there is not an antibody to test for. That is an archaic term really relevant for rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, spondyloarthropathy, which really has gone by the wayside, though you still see people use that term in the setting of talking about spondyloarthritis. So the gist of it is that ICD-11, which is coming, really is going to help reshape the terminology a little bit, where now we'll see axial spondyloarthritis as the leading term, and then you'll be able to define it potentially by whether patients have damage or not. And I think that's similar to the way we think about other disease states where the disease defines the, uh, is defining the term axial spondyloarthritis, this is one disease state, and then you can qualify it with prognostic features like radiographic damage or not. So that's it from me for spondyloarthritis at the meeting today. For more information, please go to room now. Uh, thank you very much. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope at Room Now, and I'm joined by an ACR ambassador, Dr. Jeff Sparks, and we're going to talk about ACR 2020. So thanks for coming on board, Jeff. I'd like you to tell me about where the field's going with interstitial lung disease and rheumatoid arthritis, because you and others have some pretty exciting abstracts at ACR 2020. Uh, sure, and thanks for the opportunity, Janet. Um, you know. The I think interstitial lung disease has obviously been known about a long time in rheumatoid arthritis, and it seems to be a bigger deal now. And I think it's because it's probably one of the one, few things that's not getting better with rheumatoid arthritis, despite all of our armamentarium. And what we've also found is that there seems to be a large spectrum of uh, lung abnormalities in rheumatoid arthritis. And it doesn't just seem to be parenchymal abnormalities, it also seems to be related to airways. And this is particularly intriguing since um, lung inflammation, in particular mucosal inflammation in the airways, may actually be part of our pathogenesis where our autoantibodies are made years prior to clinical onset. Uh, so our group has really been trying to understand this, quote, respiratory burden of RA, uh, and also try to dissect sort of what part of the lung is affected and why is that. Um, I think the first thing people think about is maybe it's all due to smoking, 
smoking is a known risk factor for rheumatoid arthritis and obviously there's bad for the lungs. Uh, so that was really the first question that we wanted to figure out is, are these manifestations really just explained by smoking? And what we found is certainly there's some explanation due to smoking, but there's really still a large part of rheumatoid arthritis lung disease that seems to be not related to that. And it's not just a parenchymal lung disease, it's also obstructive lung disease. So there's really a spectrum where patients might clinically act like they have COPD or asthma, and this could actually be a manifestation of RA. Certainly there's some patients with, that might have mild interstitial changes that aren't symptomatic, and we have to really work on trying to figure out who are the ones that progress to things that are clinically significant. So there's really a lot of work to do, and it's an exciting field. So one thing, it seems at this meeting that when you did a large study, uh, you found, I think it was a, a few, three to 6%, depending on how you cut the data of interstitial lung disease, more um, UIP. Can you tell me more about that study and what the take-home message might be? Sure. Well, we've been finding interstitial lung disease within our BRAS cohort here at Brigham Women's Hospital. Uh, and then we've also been using other data sets. So within our BRAS cohort, we really do a lot of work to try to find, you know, really granular detail about trying to find when our ILD uh, develops and what the severity is. Uh, for this meeting, we've also branched out to looking in administrative claims databases, which obviously have uh, advantages in numbers. Um, and we recently validated an algorithm where we're able to look at the incidence and prevalence of, of RAILD throughout all of Medicare. Obviously, that's really the entire U.S. over the age of 65. And what we found is that nearly 5% of patients with RA had what was validated as a clinically significant ILD. So this is not a rare issue. And that would be certainly up to my experience that I think ILD is more common than that, but clinically relevant, probably 5%. And I think of it in I realize you're going to prove me wrong in a second, but I always used to think of it in longstanding, um, strongly seropositive RF, ACPA, or both, a bit more common in men than women. And that in some people, it's a long, long time, but certainly does lead to decompensation and death. So am I thinking about it the right way, or is it incident far earlier than what I'm suspecting? Well, I think that's what our group is trying to understand and shed some light on novel risk factors for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, certainly longstanding RA and older age and smoking were really the risk factors that have been known for you know, several years. Um, and maybe the epidemiology is changing. Again, it does seem like the prevalence of ILD is, is getting worse actually with calendar time. So I think this is really a good time to try to identify new risk factors. Uh, some other abstracts have actually shown that this can happen pretty often within early RA. About half of ILD seems to occur within two years of clinical RA diagnosis. Uh, and then our group here at this meeting looked at other risk factors. We found that uh, high disease activity, high CRP, high MD hack, um, obesity. And we also found that a threshold of smoking above 30 pack years really seemed to increase the risk of um, RAILD. So if you have an RA patient who's smoking, but they haven't hit that 30 pack year threshold, that's really the time to try to get them to quit smoking. Right. Never too late to quit. Never to, you know, early is better, of course. And then mm -hmm. I think it leads to treatment. I know at ULAR and in some recent publications, it looks like I think we can say that methotrexate does not 
cause or exacerbate ILD other than that acute bilateral pneumonitis, which is a different problem. However, when someone's on methotrexate and they have ILD and breakthrough, uh, I realized we're not sure what to do. So there was an abstract. Someone had that abatacep looked like a reasonable treatment. Historically, we've thought of um, uh, using rituximab and less so we kind of think that the TNFs might be a problem. So shifting gears, I certainly can say that the ILD and RA is different looking than in systemic sclerosis. In systemic sclerosis, it's usually about 15% of patients where it's clinically relevant, about double that who really actually have it. And we tend to think of it starting early and losing lung function early, and then it might level and then maybe you aspirate or have pneumonia or something happens or have a bad cold and then you lose ground again, almost stepwise. And certainly um, there are treatments that we think of such as MMF, so immune suppression, the way we think in RA and cyclophosphamide like an RA. And then Nintendinib has data both in um, uh, significant ILD in systemic sclerosis. And then they did that other study in RA. So I think we're unraveling it. And I think your group and other groups are also uh, saving serum where possible in the brass cohort for genes like that muc gene and other things. So hopefully we will have a chance of um, unraveling more and treating our patients more effectively. Well, absolutely. We're certainly learning a lot from uh, systemic sclerosis related ILD. You guys are leading the field. But obviously, they're different diseases, so you can't necessarily think that everything that works in systemic sclerosis will work in RA. Um, I think it really is exciting that uh, it seems like beyond MMF and rituxan that uh, abatacep certainly seems promising. But obviously, you really need trials to really understand um, how to best treat these patients. It's a tough it's a tough disease to diagnose as well, and how these medications might uh, affect risk for ILD is also up in the air. Um, there are trials ongoing about antifibrotics in RA, but certainly it would be interesting to look at, uh, you know, some of the other medications that rheumatologists often use to see whether they could help with uh, the ILD disease course. Absolutely. And we think it's quite serious, uh, an, a serious complication in both RA, which can be lethal for sure over time. And in systemic sclerosis, we have an abstract looking at um, incident population based from a claims database and in over 3000 patients with systemic sclerosis in Ontario over about the last 10 years. If you have ILD, then really your survival is only 50% as high. So you, you double your mortality over the next five to 10 years. So very very serious complication of both our diseases. Yes, and our abstract in Medicare also showed around a twofold risk of total mortality, uh, even in older patients who already have a high risk for, for mortality. Uh, and then we also found the expected increased risk for respiratory mortality, but we found a novel risk factor, risk for cancer mortality. So I think that's actually going to be a, a new uh, uh, angle about how to uh, treat and manage our patients about whether these patients are at risk for cancer. And it wasn't just lung cancer, I think, in your study. It was all, all cancer mortality. It was total cancer mortality, correct. That's right. Yeah. And when you adjust for smoking, who knows what will happen, but I think it still exists. It still, it still was present. So I think it's important. These patients, you know, really have a serious disease and we got a lot to do to uncover it. Well, let's hope that our fields move forward, and I think they're continuing to do so. And thanks, everyone. Please go to uh, room now, and uh, thanks for attending the ACR 2020 Convergence Meeting. Thank you. Hi.
I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting for Room Now from ACR 2020. I'd like to discuss the skip pain trial by Dr. Dennis Padamni and colleagues with abstract number 0899 presented during the poster B sessions. Spinal pain and axial spondyloarthritis is a common complaint and can affect the quality of life in these patients. This study evaluated the efficacy and safety of secukinumab in reducing spinal pain and disease activity following a step-up dosing approach. Skip pain is a randomized double-blind multi-center study that enrolled patients with axial spondyloarthritis with active disease defined by a BASDI score of more than or equal to four with an average NRS more than four and inadequate response to two or more NSAIDs more than four weeks apart. Patients were randomized to receive subcutaneous secukinumab 150 milligrams or placebo weekly, then every four weeks at week four. At week eight, placebo patients were re-randomized to either secukinumab 150 milligrams or 300 milligrams up to week 24. On the other hand, patients who were originally randomized to secukinumab 150 milligrams were further classified into responders or non-responders based on their spinal pain NRS scores. Responders were then reassigned to continue treatment with 150 milligrams every four weeks up to week 24, while non-responders were re-randomized to receive treatment with 150 milligrams or a step-up dose of 300 milligrams up to week 24. Now for the results. The primary endpoint was met with the proportion of NRS core responders favoring secukinumab over placebo. At week 24, further reductions in spinal pain was noted across treatment groups, especially those who were switched to the active drug at week eight. There were also pronounced improvement in ASDAS CRP scores. No new or unexpected safety signals were reported. In conclusion, secukinumab provided rapid significant improvement in spinal pain and low disease activity in patients with axial spondyloarthritis. I think this trial is worthy of our attention for two things. One, compared to other clinical studies in axial spa, this used spinal pain as their primary endpoint. And two, results are interesting to take note of because it provides clinicians an option for dose escalation of secukinumab in patients not initially responding to the drug. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune in to Room Now for more videos and reports. Thank you.